Greetings to all of you, brothers and sisters, in the precious name of Jesus. It is a special joy for me and my family to be here this weekend and to fellowship with y'all. Uh, we get up here occasionally over the years, uh, but it's usually for, you know, something like a chorus program or hymn sing or something like that, which is all good and well. But it's, just, it's especially special for us to be here uh, to just worship with you and to, and to study the Word together with you. We've been looking forward to this. I also want to assure you of our prayers uh, for your congregation uh, back home in Ebenezer. We have prayed for you a many a time uh, in the last year and, and know full well that y'all have went through some difficult times um, that have been very trying. And our prayers are with you and we love you and we support you. And may God continue to give y'all wisdom uh, as, you, as you look into the future. Clayton, that was a very fitting song as we begin this, this weekend. It's a, it's a heart's cry to know the truth and to understand the truth and to be revived in the truth. I told some of the brothers before, before the service that these messages this weekend, they're really not heartwarming messages. <laughs> that's, not the, that's not what they're designed to be. We're talking about spiritual warfare this weekend. We're talking about the enemy's tactics. And, and embedded in all of Satan's tactics is deception. It never looks that bad right up front. It never looks that bad. And perhaps we never intended to go that far because it didn't look like that up front, you see. But I say that we fight deception with the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, the truth. And as the brother shared earlier, it's the truth that brings true freedom. And I trust that we can be revived this weekend as we study the truth. Now, it is important, once again, that as we, as we begin these meetings, that we understand and realize very clearly that we are in a battle. We are in a battle. And we ought not be, uh, be laying down and laying low, but we ought to be fighting with every effort. In Ephesians chapter 6, we read about uh, the, the battle that we're in. It's not your, your battle that you see out here uh, in a physical way across the world today. But no, the Apostle Paul says, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but we wrestle against principalities and against powers and rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. And so he says, be strong, be a strong soldier, put your armor on, and let's start fighting. Let's be vigilant. We're in a battle. The subjects that we're looking at uh, this weekend, well, tomorrow we're looking at disobedience. Uh, tomorrow evening we're looking at complacency. And right away you say, well, yeah, that's not good. Those are not good things. They, they have a, a, negative, a negative sound to them. We don't want to be disobedient. No, we, we don't want to be complacent. But this evening we're looking at the, at the subject of prosperity. 
And right off the bat, it sort of has, a, has an appeal to it, doesn't it? Sort of a positive appeal to it. Yeah, I mean, we, we all like to have a little money. We all like to be wealthy. Um, that sounds good. However, the title itself for tonight suggests something very negative about prosperity. Something very negative about wealth and riches. It suggests that there is something lacking. It suggests that it's not all that it's made out to be. The title suggests that the pursuit of prosperity and the end of it is full of emptiness. It's full of emptiness. The title is The Poverty of Prosperity. The Poverty of Prosperity. There was a, a lady that lived years ago. Her name was Hetty Green. And Hetty was considered one of the, the world's greatest misers at the time. This had been some years ago. But when Hetty passed away, she left an estate uh, valued over a million dollars. But Hetty always ate cold oatmeal because it cost too much to heat it up. And Hetty's son had to uh, have a leg amputated because she wasted so much time looking for a free clinic that it ended up in a, a leg being taken off of her son. Hetty Green was very, very wealthy, but yet Hetty was a pauper. She really was. In fact, she was so foolish that she, she hastened her own death by becoming too excited over discussion about the value of drinking skimmed milk. <laughs> That's how she passed away. <laughs> and, we, and we laugh at a foolish woman like that and say, wow, that is just crazy. What was she thinking, you know? That, that's so ridiculous. But dear people, the sobering thing is that this is actually a tragic illustration of many Christians today. Many Christians today. You know, we have limitless wealth at our disposal. And yet, we often choose to live in spiritual poverty. We have the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the ruler, who is the creator, who is the God that means so much. It means everything. And he, we have all of that as Christians. We have all of that and all of what he has to offer at our disposal. And yet, so often, we choose to live in spiritual poverty. Too often times, we are just like old Hetty Green. You know, Jesus talked a great deal about money. I note that 16 of the 38 parables are concerned with how to handle money, how to handle possessions. Uh, in the Gospels, one out of 10 verses, I think, I think something like 288 verses in all, one out of 10 deal directly with money. Uh, I've read that the Bible offers 500 verses on prayer, less than 500 verses on faith, but more than 2,000 verses on money and possessions. And yet many times we live as if there's little direction given. 
And yet the Bible is full of direction. The Bible is full of insight. I have found that the Bible actually has very little good to say about wealth. As I studied uh, for this subject, I was amazed once again, the Bible has very little positive things to say about wealth. In fact, in fact the vast majority of the verses on the subject speak about it in a negative light. Uh, they caution us. They speak of its destructive nature. Uh, they speak of its power to ruin people and to ruin relationships. Uh, they tell us that wealth can cause us to forget God and to trust in ourselves. The scripture says that wealth is a snare. Wealth causes people to lose out spiritually. Wealth brings many temptations. You know, we're told that, that money can't buy happiness. Money can't buy happiness. But it seems that there's just too many people that just want to just try it for themselves. <laughs> yeah, we know that money can't buy happiness, but maybe it can for me. I know it didn't for him, but maybe he just didn't do it right. <laughs> maybe it can bring me happiness. And, and we, as conservative Mennonites, are not immune to this. I, and, and not even the Amish. <laughs> and I say that because I have a good friend who, who drives for the Amish down there close to us. He was telling me the other day, he said, Josh, did you know that, that the Amish, uh, that they burn their tax refund checks? I said, are you serious? Yeah, yeah. He said, they, they, they have nothing to do with them, at least the group in, in our area. And, and he said, he said, the one Amish man told him, he said, Boy, he said, it's really hard to, it's really hard to burn a, a tax refund check for $7,000. And I said, boy, yeah, I bet it would be. So he just puts an envelope and sends it back. That's easier for him to do. <laughs> and so, you know, we can look at that and say, wow, you know, maybe they have a handle on this. But, <laughs> but I say, not all together. Uh, Look at their hunting trips and look at their hobbies and, and look at their businesses and they have their own set of struggles just like we do. We are not immune to these things. Sometimes we have this idea that this is something out there that the world, were, that the world struggles with and, and I'm glad we're not like they are. <laughs> That's deception too, you know. <laughs> yes. We are not immune to these things. I found it interesting when our family was, was at Heritage Bible School back uh, this past winter, and I shared in some meetings there, I found it interesting to walk around the campus there at Heritage Bible School and just observe. And I found some things actually a little alarming. And let, me just, let me just note something that alarmed me a little bit. So you have a group of, of young people, 17, 18, a lot of them 17, 18 years old, some a little older. And as I walked around outside and noticed the vehicles, I found that kind of interesting. A lot of, I would say the majority are late model vehicles. We had some Cadillacs and we had some Mustangs and, and, uh, and some, some VWs and some late model vehicles. And, and we had some real, a number of big pickup trucks. I mean big Trucks with packages, not just, not just your, your normal ones, but some big pickup trucks. And, and I walk through the, the cell room where they keep their, uh, their cell phones. And, and uh, you know, the majority of them were, were big and the, the newest smartphones. And um, I thought through some of that a little bit. And I said, 
Where are these young people, where are these 17 and 18 year olds getting this money? <laughs> How is this? How is this? What are the values that are being passed on here? It struck me as a little interesting and, and somewhat alarming. And I fear this evening that, that we are subconsciously, or maybe not so subconsciously, we are teaching our children that, that if you want something bad enough, just work for it. You, you can just work for it, save up your money. You know, you can, you can get it. It is attainable. You see, sometimes we, we look around at our young people and, and we sort of raise our eyebrows as if there's a problem. I want to challenge us this evening, dear people, and older ones, dads and moms, and myself included, that we can often trace back those problems by snooping around dad and mom's house a little bit. Go snoop around dad and mom's garage. Go look in dad's shop. Open the gun safe. Look in some of those places and it becomes more evident what the values actually are. Perhaps it's really not the young people's problem. Perhaps it's dad and mom's problem. We are teaching our children, whether it's through our words or just simply through the way we live life, the decisions that we make as it comes to prosperity, through wealth, so forth. And I say again, regardless of what we think, we are not immune to the, desire, the desire to just want a little bit more. But I wonder sometimes if we are often catching our signals from the wrong place. You see, there are... When it comes to wealth, there are at least a couple worldviews out there. And the one is, is the worldview of society, what society has to offer. The other is the worldview of the Christian, of the disciple of Jesus Christ. And there is a great contrast in those worldviews. Society's worldview or society's pursuit for prosperity and wealth has a very inward, has a very selfish focus. It's about having more. It's about keeping up with others. It's about fitting in. It's about a comfortable life. It's about supporting expensive hobbies. It's about those nice vacations. It's those easy retirements, those types of things. And so to accomplish this, you could say this soft and selfish American dream, dad and mom often have to both work at the expense of the children. Because, see, the lifestyle is more important than the children. The children are not as important to dad and mom as, as this dream is. The dream is actually, I guess, more important than the reality. I mean, the reality is that we have children to care for. This is our family. That's very obvious. But yet there's this pursuit out there for something that they want to attain, that they believe everyone is is pursuing and and I want to be just like them and we call it the American dream it's a worldview I say that primarily pleases myself and let me remind all of us that that pursuing the pursuit and the end of us of such of such a worldview always ends in ruin it always ends in spiritual ruin and it often ends in physical ruin. 
Perhaps you know of those who, who have given their lives, you could say, given their time and given all their efforts uh, to, to make more money and to take care of the stuff and to pursue this. And they, they've run themselves ragged in order to pursue the things of this world. And yes, there is no peace in it. There is no peace in it. And they often end up losing their health over such a thing. And yet sometimes, and maybe too often times, we find ourselves uh, casting a longing, a longing gaze at that. It looks so appealing. We find ourselves sort of buying in to that worldview. And sadly enough, there have been those of our number over the years who have sold out to the American dream. And although today they have fat wallets, I ask you, what do they really have? What do they really have? I think of, of a brother who was with us for a number of years back at home. And this man, he pursued business in a very tireless kind of way. And he worked long and he worked late and, and his life was wrapped around business and business pursuits and so forth. And today, his family is at war against one another. His marriage has been on the rocks. He has no church to call his own. Does he have money? Oh, he has a lot of money. But I say, what does he really have? What does he really have? Then on the contrary, we have the Christian's purpose for material gain. And the, the Christian's purpose for material gain has a, has a very outward focus. It's not about me. It's about God. It's about others. The Christian gets in order to give. The Christian says, you know, when the Lord blesses me with greater income, then I will strive to maintain my modest lifestyle so that I can give more. It's about helping others. It's about being more useful. It's about having an eye for people around you. And I say closely tied to the Christian's purpose for material gain is his desire to support the church and its mission. That's tied in closely to why he makes money. It's not all about him. There's a greater purpose out there than myself. You see, the Christian's greatest goal in life is to please the Lord Jesus Christ. And a pursuit such as this will always end in rich blessing. It certainly will. Always end in rich blessing. Now, as I mentioned earlier, the Bible has a lot to say about wealth and prosperity and, and riches. And so that's where we want to go for direction. After all, that is the truth. That's where we find the truth about this matter. But before we do that, I want us to ponder the question for just a moment. Who is rich? So who is rich anyway? We're talking about prosperity. And perhaps you've already decided back soon after I started that this would be a great message for so-and-so. And I really hope that they're listening, you know, and that type of thing. We're so prone to do that. Even preachers do that. <laughs> but I would like us to ponder the question, who is rich? See, most people don't think they are. In a recent poll, 
One of the questions was this, would you consider yourself rich? And the answer, regardless of how much they made, was no. Largely, the people that poll said no. There was a survey taken in, in 2013. It was taken among people who have between $1 million and $5 million in assets. And of those people, only 28% of them considered themselves wealthy. <laughs> only 28%. But they all had between $1 and $5 million in assets. You see, it's so easy for us to look around. It's so easy for us to start comparing. Well, no, I'm not rich because look at him. No, no, we, no, and we, we start playing that game. Where all of a sudden, no one is rich because there's always someone richer than they are, right? That's how it goes. I found a little book by Gary Miller very intriguing. And, and it really made me ponder seriously how I consider wealth and, and how I consider myself. That is the little book, Life in a Global Village. How many of you have, have read or seen that little book, Life in a Global Village? <clears throat> in that book, Mr. Miller says, you know, imagine that the whole world were shrunk down to a village of just 100 people. Okay, so you have the whole world. Now, now we're talking about a little village here of 100 people, and actually each person in that village represents 70 million people, okay? So there's 100, 100 people in this little village. And then he makes some very interesting observations about age and nationality and religion and lifestyle and income and things like that. Listen, 80 of the 100 people in your village make less than $10 a day. Now, and this wasn't from 1905, okay? This is rather current. 80 of the 100 people in your village make less than $10 a day. 48 of your neighbors earn less than $2.50 a day. 17 people in your village earn less than $1.25 a day. The truth is, there is only one man in your village that makes more than $34,000 a year. You want to take a guess on who that might be? Now, suppose you made $35,000 last year. And I don't mean you put $35,000 in the bank. <laughs> suppose, suppose your income, suppose you received $35,000 last year. That puts you in the top 0.81% richest people in the whole world. In one hour, you make approximately $18. Meanwhile, the average laborer in Indonesia makes just 39 cents in the same amount of time. Your monthly income could pay the monthly salaries of 215 doctors in the African country of Malawi. 215 doctors a month could live off of your income. And then Gary says this, Living in America can distort our view of reality, but now that we have seen life from a global perspective, when we read Jesus' warnings to the wealthy, we know who he is talking to. You may live in the United States and feel you are barely earning enough, but what if you lived in a global village? How might living in this village affect your life? 
Instead of comparing yourself with wealthier people, how would it feel to interact daily with people who have much less than you do? Think about that. Think about that. So, let's look into the Word of God. Now that we realize that this message this evening is specifically for each one of us in this room, let's turn to Proverbs as a starting place and see what the Bible has to say. Proverbs chapter 11. Proverbs has some very powerful words on the subject of prosperity. We're going to flip through a few verses here without a whole lot of comment. Proverbs eleven twenty four. There is that scattereth and yet increaseth. And there is that withholdeth more than is meet, but it tendeth to poverty. Verse 28. He that trusteth in his riches shall fall, but the righteous shall flourish as a branch. Now immediately you, you realize that this sounds a little backwards to how we often think. There is that Scattereth. There is that gives away what he has, and yet he gets more and more. And then there is someone who, hey, that sounds like Hetty Green. <laughs> there is someone like, like Hetty Green, you could say, that just keeps as much as they can, and yet they have nothing. It comes to poverty. Turn to chapter 13. Chapter 13, verse 7. There is that maketh himself rich, yet hath nothing. There is that maketh himself poor, yet hath great riches. Turn to chapter 23. Chapter 23 and verses 4 and 5. Labor not to be rich, Cease from thine own wisdom. Or in other words, do not wear yourself out to get rich. Have the wisdom to show restraint. Restraint, what's that? That's a, that's a foreign word in, in, in the world today. And perhaps in some of our circles too often. What's restraint? The scripture says, don't wear yourself out to get rich. Have the wisdom to show restraint. Verse 5, Wilt thou set thine eyes upon that which is not? For riches certainly make themselves wings. They fly away as an eagle toward heaven. Why would you want to wear yourself out for something that isn't? <laughs> Once again, going back to that American dream, it's just a dream. It's not reality. Wrapped up in that whole American dream is deception. And, the, and Satan is loving every minute of it. Because more and more, as people buy into that, the more and more they buy into that, the less and less they have any desire to seek after the real things of life, like the Word of God, like the church, like their husband or their wife, like their children. All of a sudden, other things in life seem kind of drab. And Satan's going, ha ha, gotcha, gotcha. 
Turn to chapter 28. Proverbs 28 and verse 22. First of all, verse 20. 28 verse 20. A faithful man shall abound with blessings. In other words, he'll be richly blessed. But he that maketh haste to be rich shall not be innocent. Verse 22. He that hasteth to be rich hath an evil eye, and considereth not that poverty shall come upon him. Let me just read a little illustration here. Once again, it's from, it's from many years ago, but it has, it has some real power for us even today in modern times. In 1923, at the Edgewater Beach Hotel in Chicago, Illinois, eight of the most powerful money men in the world gathered for a meeting. These eight, if they combined their resources and their assets, controlled more than the U.S. Treasury. In that group were such men as Charles Schwab. He was the president of a steel company. Richard Whitney was the president of the New York Stock Exchange. Arthur Cutton was a wheat, a wheat speculator. Albert Fall was a presidential cabinet member, personally a very wealthy man. Jesse Livermore was the greatest bear on Wall Street in his generation. Leon Fraser was the president of the International Bank of Settlements. Ivan Kruger headed the largest monopoly. Quite an impressive group of people here. Let's look at this same group later in life. Charles Schwab died penniless. Richard Whitney spent the rest of his life serving a sentence in Sing Sing Prison. <laughs> I doubt there was much singing happening in Sing Sing Prison. Arthur Cutton, that great wheat speculator, became insolvent. Albert Fall was pardoned from a federal prison so he might die at home. Leon Fraser, the president of that big international bank, he committed suicide. Jesse Livermore, he committed suicide. Ivan Kruger, he committed suicide. Seven of those eight great big money men had lives that were disasters before they left planet Earth. And the illustration then the writers asked this question what mistake did they make what mistake did they make you see they thought they had it all the writers answer to that was thinking that what they had and what they controlled belonged to them Turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Ecclesiastes chapter 5. And I want you to note with special interest once again, and, and you would realize this, who is writing? Okay? Who is writing? This isn't some poor man that lives out in a mud shack. No, <laughs> not at all. This is the richest man that ever lived. This is Solomon. I find it interesting to note that the heading here of these verses, starting at verse 10 for me, Ecclesiastes chapter 5, the heading is, Riches are meaningless. Really? Okay, this is Solomon, right? <laughs> Riches are meaningless. Let's see what Solomon had to say, starting at verse 10. He that loveth silver shall not be satisfied with silver, nor he that loveth abundance with increase. Or in other words, what he's saying there is that 
he is never satisfied with his income. It's just never enough. If only I had one more penny. That's the attitude. Verse 11. When goods increase, they are increased that eat them. And what good is there to the owners thereof, saving the beholding of them with their eyes? The sleep of a laboring man is sweet, whether he eats little or much. But the abundance of the rich will not suffer him to sleep. There is a sore evil which I have seen under the sun, namely, riches kept for the owners thereof to their hurt. But those riches perish by evil travail. And he begetteth a son, and there's nothing in his hand. Sounds like that, those riches that just come and go, that fly away like an eagle toward heaven. I thought I had all this, and all of a sudden I have nothing to pass on. Verse 15, As he came forth of his mother's womb, naked shall he return to go as he came, and shall take nothing of his labor, which he may carry away in his hand. And this also is a sore evil, that in all points as he came, so shall he go. And what profit hath he that hath labored for the wind? All his days also he eateth in darkness, and he hath much sorrow and wrath with his sickness. What a sorrowful picture. You still want to be rich? I'm not sure I want to be rich. Look at, look at the description of, of people that are, are pursuing wealth. Oh, they're a miserable group of people. I mean, what does Solomon say here? They're not satisfied. They're cranky. They can't sleep at night. They die with nothing. I mean... They have much sorrow. They're angry people. They're frustrated. <laughs> let them have it. <laughs> what a picture. But let's note the contrast that we have here in the next few verses. Verse 18. Look what he says. He says, listen here. Note or behold that which I have seen. It is good and comely for one to eat and to drink and to enjoy the good of all his labor that he taketh under the sun all the days of his life, which God giveth him, for it is his portion. Every man also to whom God hath given riches and wealth, and hath given him power to eat thereof, and to take his portion, and to rejoice in his labor, this is the gift of God. For he shall not much remember the days of his life, because God answers him in the joy of his heart. Now, that is beautiful. What's the difference? We have, we have verses 10 through 17, this miserable lot of people. They're trying to get more and more. They're never satisfied. They need more money, and, and they're, they're pursuing that. That's what drives them, and you see their lot. And then you see the picture of these people in verses 18 through 20. I say, what's the difference? The difference is that they understand where these things come from, and who actually owns them. Note what, note what we see a number of times here in verses 18, 19, and 20. 18, which God giveth him. Verse 19, whom God hath given. The end of verse 19, this is the gift of God. In verse 20, God answers him, or God keeps him occupied with a glad heart. This is a person who has understood that what I have comes from God. I am just a steward of what God has given me. 
And, and yes, God blesses people in different ways. Perhaps God has blessed you with great financial blessings. Praise the Lord for that. And keep in proper perspective and proper focus whose it really is. That will greatly influence what you do with it. But this person here goes through life with joy in their heart. They have a clear conscience. And life is so wonderful. It says that they don't hardly remember how things were because they just they're so joyful to God for His blessings in their lives. Let's turn now to Luke chapter 12. We're looking through the Scripture here to find nuggets of truth that give us direction for living, especially as it relates to this thing of prosperity and wealth and riches. And remember, we're talking about us this evening. We're talking about us this evening. We're looking at the parable of the rich fool here. Luke chapter 12, we start at verse 13, and I'd like for us to note a few things as we go down through these verses. We're going to note the truth in verse 15, we're going to note the tragedy, I'll say, or it's an illustration that Jesus gave. First we'll note the truth, then we'll note the tragedy. And then as we move on down through the passage, we're going to note the challenge, and at the very end, the cure. Luke 12, verse 13. And one of the company said unto him, Master, speak to my brother, that he divide the inheritance with me. And Jesus said unto him, Man, who made me judge or divider over you? And here's the truth. Verse 15. Take heed and beware of covetousness. For a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things which he possesseth. Now here's the tragedy that we see. And he spake a parable unto them, saying, The ground of a rich man brought forth plentifully, and he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do, because I have no room where to bestow my fruits? And he said, Ha ha, this will I do. I will pull down my barns and build greater, and there will I bestow all my fruits and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease, eat, drink, be merry, move to Sarasota. Oh, no, it doesn't say that. But God said unto him, Thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. Then whose shall those things be which thou hast provided? So is he that lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Now let's stop here for a moment. And let's just summarize quickly what we're reading here. In verses 16 and 17, the rich man had a dilemma. He had a dilemma. Here, here his crops had just produced wonderfully. His harvest was so great that he didn't have the room to store it. And, and that's, that's not overly unusual. I mean, that happens. That happens to people. And, and I trust that, that you farmers have experienced that before. And so, so far, so good. He just has a really good crop, and he needs more room. What's, what's he going to do now? That's his dilemma. 
Verse 18, the rich man makes a decision. He makes a decision. And he decides that he's going to solve his problem. He's going to solve this dilemma by tearing down his little barns and building great big barns so he can hold all of his bumper crop. Now, where is his focus? Is his focus on, on others? Is his focus on helping his neighbor? Is his focus on God? Not at all. No, his focus is on himself. And just note in those verses there, note all the eyes. I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do that, and I'm going to say to myself, and I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do that. It's just, it's all through it. He wasn't thinking about anyone except himself. How can I personally benefit from this? He had a dilemma. He made a decision. Note also in verse 19, his delusion. He makes two fatal errors. He starts assuming. He starts assuming. Assuming is never good. Let's note what he assumed. First of all, in verse 19, he assumed that he had many years to live. Soul, thou hast much goods laid up for many years, and I can't wait to benefit from it all. He assumed that he had many years to live. Secondly, he assumed that his material wealth, he assumed that his riches could bring him satisfaction. That's finally what he'd been waiting for. Now he can kick back. Now he can party. He's worked so hard for this. He's finally got what he wanted all these years. Okay, now it's time for some, some me time, was the attitude. Verse 20 is a sobering verse. It speaks of the rich man's destruction. God takes his life that very night. And then Jesus says, Now whose will these things be? Verse 21, Jesus gives the definition of this parable. What is that definition? Don't ever get rich. No. No, not at all. That's not the definition of this parable. What Jesus was saying here, at least in my estimation, was don't store up earthly riches and ignore your personal relationship with God. Or don't pursue prosperity at the expense of your relationship with God. What does he say? So is he that lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. You know, that could be you and me this evening. An inward focus. And the question that we must ponder is, what am I doing with what I have? What is my focus with what I have? Is my focus on on how this can benefit me, how I can more prosper from this? Or is my focus on how I can be a better brother and sister to, to those in my congregation? Or how can I help my neighbor? Or 
How can I help better those who are less fortunate than I am? What am I doing with what I have? You see, this farmer had gotten his wealth honestly. I mean, he, he didn't do anything wicked in order to get this. We saw that his... Now, perhaps he, he put extra work into his soil or whatever to make good growing conditions. That's possible. But he got his wealth honestly. You know, his land was productive. But in God's eyes, he was a fool because he had an earthly focus and not a heavenly yeah, he was rich in this world for sure, but he was a pauper in spiritual terms. You know, folks, this world lasts for just a little bit. The one that is to come is forever. Where's your treasure? We could read on here. I'm not going to read all these verses. But I would like to note towards the end. Jesus is talking about how we ought not worry. We ought not pursue these things in unreasonable ways. We ought not pursue them because God cares for us. God will provide. Trust God to provide. He cares for the little things in life. Certainly He will care for you. After all, He says... Don't be like the Gentiles. Don't be like the world. Don't have their worldview. They're the ones who are always running, running, running after these things. God knows what you need. Trust Him. He'll care for you. Verse 30, For all these things do the nations of the world seek after, and your Father knows what ye have need of these things. But rather... Seek ye the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added unto you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell what you have, give alms, provide yourselves bags which wax not old, a treasure in the heavens that faileth not, where no thief approacheth, neither moth corrupteth. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. You know, sometimes I just note here, ask you this evening, where is your treasure? Where is your treasure? Sometimes we look at this verse and we say, we need to be very careful uh, about, about our heart. We need to be careful about what we let our heart, you know, trust in. We need to be really careful about where we put our heart, because if we put our heart on the wrong thing, we're going to get in trouble, and that's not good. Dear people, your heart is going to be where your treasure is. The real question is, where is your treasure? <laughs> Jesus said, where your treasure is, your heart's going to be there. Worry about where your treasure, if your treasure is right, then you're blessed. Where is your treasure? You see, where our treasure is, that's where our effort is. That's where our focus is. That's where our attention is. That's where our money goes to. That's where... We'll sacrifice. We'll sacrifice for the treasure. Where's your treasure? Your heart, that's where your heart really is. Let's keep in sharp, sharp focus this evening, once again, that we are talking about spiritual warfare. And, and I am confident that in our American culture, the pursuit of prosperity 
is causing many people to either stay uninterested in developing a personal relationship with Jesus Christ or to spiritually grow cold. It's getting in the way, one way or the other, that pursuit. And many people today are, are taking the bait, and that bait is the belief that prosperity equals quality of life. The truth is, dear people, riches are deceiving. Riches are not what they're made out to be. They never truly and fully deliver what they promise. They never do. You see, being well off financially, it leads us to think that we have sort of found our place in this world. It kind of gives us, you know, we've made good money and we're well off and we've, we've, got, we've got what we need and we've got more than we need. And it makes us kind of feel a little, bit, a, little bit, a little bit proud about where we're at in life. We think we've found our place. We've attained. The truth is, the truth is, dear people, that the world actually has found its place in us. Yeah, the, found, the world has found its place in us. And so in this passage here in Luke chapter 12, Jesus said that, you know, real living is not found in the abundance of material possessions. No, that's not where it is. Down in verse 23, he says, it's not found in food or clothes. That's not what it's all about. Verse 30, he says, yeah, that's what the world believes. And they're, they're, they're running after that. But verse 31, he makes it clear. Real living, real prosperity comes by seeking God. It comes by seeking God. That's where it's at. And then, note once again, the cure for man's money problem is there in verse 33. Sell and give. Sell and give. We're not going to turn to this passage, but it's one that speaks very well to the subject, and, and perhaps you can read it later at your own convenience. But it's in Mark chapter 10. I'm reminded of... of the rich young man that came to Jesus and said, you know, good master, what may I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, well, you know what to do. Do this and do that and do this and do that and all these things. And he said, hey, I've been doing all those things from my youth. I've been doing it. And he's kind of thinking, okay, this is, this is sounding good, isn't it? And then the scripture says, this, and it, and it, it really sticks out to me. It speaks to me. He said, but Jesus loved him. Jesus looked at him, or Jesus turned to him, and Jesus loved him. Jesus knew that we were now at the point of decision. This is really where it was. Jesus looked at him, and Jesus loved him. And Jesus said, okay, you need to sell what you have. You need to give it away. You need to come and follow me, and you'll have great reward in heaven. And what was the response? The man left sorrowful because he had great possessions. And I can, I can imagine how that must hurt the heart of Jesus. The man said, no, Jesus, I don't want you. I want, what I, I want my money. My money is more important than you. What I have is more important. My possessions are more important. My boat is more, my hunting, my hobbies, whatever. They're more important than you are to me, Jesus. Slap. It's sort of, I can imagine how that must hurt Jesus. I 
I think really we could call this the rich young Mennonite. I think we fit very well into this story. Yeah, we've lived a good, clean life. We act right. We dress right. We go to church. We do the right things, just like this rich young man. Yeah, yeah, Jesus, I've done all those things. And yet Jesus said, you're lacking. You're lacking one thing. You're lacking one thing. And that one thing meant everything. And Jesus cut right to the heart of the matter by revealing where his treasure was and therefore where his heart was. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Someone has said, money is one of the acid tests of character. Whether a man is rich or poor, observe his reactions to his possessions and you have a revealing index to his character. I would like for us to turn to Psalm 112 and note just, just several verses there that help us to gain a proper perspective of prosperity. I would like us to, to just spend a few moments here now noting a proper perspective of prosperity. Psalm 112. Verses 1 through 3. Praise ye the Lord. Blessed is the man that fears the Lord, that delights greatly in his commandments. His, his seed shall be mighty upon earth. The generation of the upright shall be blessed. Wealth and riches shall be in his house, and his righteousness endures forever. The man that fears the Lord, the man that delights greatly in the Word of God is a rich man, is a rich man. Now, true, he, he may be listed on the government list of those that are in the poverty level. He may be. But yet, according to God's standard, he's a wealthy man. He's a wealthy man. You choose which standard you want to adhere to. I'd rather adhere to God's standard. The man that fears the Lord and delights greatly in his word, that's a rich man. That's a wealthy man. Proverbs 10 verse 22 says, The blessing of the Lord, it maketh rich, and he adds no sorrow with it. Proverbs 22 verse 4, By humility and the fear of the Lord are riches and honor and life. Proverbs 15, 6, In the house of the righteous is much treasure. And then Isaiah 33, verse 6, says what that is. The fear of the Lord is his treasure. Yep, the fear of the Lord. It maketh rich. You see, this is a man who has a proper perspective of what true riches really are. And he knows that the best and the most enduring things of life can never be bought with money. Think about it for a moment. Think about the things that are truly, truly important in life. The true riches of life that can never be bought with money. Contentment. Peace. Joy in your spirit. Meaningful relationships. 
power in prayer, the promises of God, the presence of God Himself, they can never be bought with money. And yet, that is what truly makes life what it is for the Christian. Someone has said, what wealth can equal the love of God? What riches can rival a contented heart? It matters nothing that the roof is thatched and the floors of cold stone. The heart which is cheered with the favor of heaven is rich to all the intents of bliss. Think for just a moment about contentment. Contentment. Paul said that there are those who believe that gain is godliness. Or in other words, there are those who believe that godliness is a means to financial gain. He says, well, actually, Paul goes on to say, actually, godliness with contentment is great gain. Great gain is really not in the financial part of it. No, we find great gain in being content with what we have. Godliness with contentment is great gain. He goes on to say that, I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. Now, the Apostle Paul found himself in, in a number of different states in life. He found himself in some, in some very down-and-out situations where he spent time in prison and in the dungeon maybe and, and, and in very poor states. He also found himself in, in very good conditions at times. He found himself in a variety of different states. But Paul said, in whatsoever state I am, I've, I've learned to be content. I ask you, what was the common denominator in all those different states of life? What was that common denominator? It was Jesus. You're exactly right. <laughs> that was the steady part of his life. He had, a he had a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Godliness with contentment is great gain. He had the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, contrary to public opinion, contentment is not found in the stuff that we have. Contentment is not found in how much we can obtain. Contentment is found in a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. It is found when we can trust God to provide our daily needs. We find contentment in that. When we realize that we do not have to do this ourselves. I do not have to, to work my tail off <laughs> in order to make ends meet. Trust God. Let God provide. Put it in His hands. Contentment is found when we trust God to provide for our daily needs. I'm not saying we must be lazy. You know that. Not at all. But we trust God. But my God shall supply all your needs according to His riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Hey, we're talking about the Lord Jesus Christ who owns the world. But my God shall supply all your need according to His riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Why would we want to work ourselves to death trying ourselves? Trust God. As we come to the end of this message, I want to challenge us to keep looking up.
I want to challenge us this evening to maintain a heavenly focus. Colossians 3, verses 1 through 3. If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection or set your mind or your focus, set your attention on things above, not on things on the earth. For ye are dead and your life is hid with Christ in God. Remember, dear people, as a Christian, you are dead. (laughs) You are dead. Your life is hid with Christ in God. Turn to Luke 21 for some closing verses this evening. Luke chapter 21. We're going to look at verses 28 to 36. You know, we live in a day when more people than ever before are looking down. And I say that in more ways than one. I'm not going to explain. Perhaps you can consider that for a moment and think about some of the ways. But there are more people than ever before that are looking down. In the early part of this chapter here, in chapter 21 of Luke, uh, in, in verses 5 through 7, let me just give you the setting here. Some of the disciples here were remarking about the temple. <laughs> look, Jesus, look how beautiful this temple is. Wow, this is amazing. Look at the stones. Look at all this. This is fantastic. Isn't this beautiful, Jesus? And Jesus tells them, He said, One day, there's going to be a day when not one stone will be left upon another of this temple. And I can imagine that must have really jolted them. What? What? Are you serious? And they say, when is this going to be? Jesus, tell us some more about this. And then he goes on to give them some signs of the times, how they should be able to discern and have understanding of when these things should be coming to pass. And he makes it clear that the last days will be alarming days. They'll be difficult days. They'll be dangerous days. And in some ways, the last days will be very sad days when people will turn from the Lord. People who had been living vibrant lives for the Lord Jesus Christ will turn their back on Him and walk away. Where families will be split up. But He goes on to say, those days will not be hopeless days. Note verse 19, He says, In your patience possess ye your souls. Or in other words, by standing firm, you will gain life. In another passage that, that is, that is a, a, a passage that perhaps echoes this same gospel here, he says, He that shall endure to the end shall be saved. And then he gives them some more signs. Let's start at verse 28. Well, verse 27 he says, And then shall they see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. And when these things begin to come to pass, then look up and lift up your heads, for your redemption draweth nigh. And he spake to them a parable, Behold the fig tree, and all the trees. When they now shoot forth, ye see and know of your own selves that summer is now nigh at hand. So likewise ye, when ye see these things come to pass, know ye that the kingdom of God is nigh at hand. 
Verily I say unto you, this generation shall not pass away till all be fulfilled. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. And take heed to yourselves, or listen up, take note of this, lest at any time your hearts be overcharged with surfeiting and drunkenness and cares of this life, and so that day come upon you unawares. For as a snare shall it come on all them that dwell on the face of the whole earth. Watch ye therefore, and pray always, that ye may be accounted worthy to escape all these things that shall come to pass, and to stand before the Son of Man. Let's note verse 20, uh, 34 in particular here. We note some, some words that perhaps we don't use every day. But we have a picture of people who are looking down and around. I'm saying my challenge to us tonight is to look up, is to have a heavenly focus. We have a picture of people here who are, who are so busy looking around and looking down and, and worrying about their things and, oh, is my boat okay? And what about my truck? And, and oh, I wonder if I did. I remember to lock the door of, of my office. And, and, oh, yeah, I wonder. They're so busy that one day they miss it. They miss it because they were looking down, not up. They were being consumed with the things, the stuff, the run of this life. Take heed, lest at any time your hearts be overcharged, or in other words, be weary, or, or weighed down. And then he uses several words, surfeiting, drunkenness, and the cares of this life. They all speak about too much, overabundant supply, excess, Excessive indulgent, too much of something can cause us to become weary and weighed down. Jesus said, take heed, take heed, beware, lest you spend too much time looking down and around at the stuff of this world. So that day come upon you unawares. The challenge is to look up. The challenge, dear people, is to maintain a heavenly focus, an eternal perspective. What are you doing with what you have? Where is your treasure this evening? You know, the Scripture says that in the last days, many people will be lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. But I note and remember what the songwriter says. He says, Oh, how happy are they who their Savior obey and have laid up their treasure above. And that's my prayer, my desire for you this evening. You know, while the pursuit of prosperity and pleasure produces poverty, the pursuit of Jesus Christ promises peace 
and real riches, real riches. May God help us to keep a heavenly focus as we go through life. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Father, we've been confronted once again by the truth of your word. Oh Lord, we're aware once again that, that Satan loves to, to muddy the waters, as it were. And we're tempted to think, it's really not that bad. It's really not that bad. And Father, I confess that sometimes and too often times, I, I'm looking down and around and not up as I ought. Father, I pray that you would stir our hearts, give us a proper perspective of wealth and riches. Father, I pray that you would help us to maintain a heavenly focus as we go through life. And as you bless us with financial blessings, I pray that we would desire to be those who are generous givers, those who give of our goods, of our blessings, to help those around us, that the love of Jesus Christ can be passed around and, and displayed through the way we live life, through the decisions that we make, that could be a means of strengthening our brotherhood, could be a means of sharing the love of Jesus with our neighbors and those around us. May your name be honored and glorified through our gathering here tonight. We pray in Jesus' name.